Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. I invite you, let's go in our Bibles. We're going to Luke chapter 19 this morning, and this is where we will spend our time together on this Palm Sunday. This is our 60th anniversary here, Grace Community Church. Praise the Lord for his faithfulness. You're just going to keep hearing that theme throughout. It's God who has been faithful. We just sang it all my life. You have been faithful. And here's the, here's the thing. I wasn't around in 1962. 30 years ago when this church celebrated its 30th anniversary, the founding pastor was already at home in heaven. He has been passed away for 30 plus years now, 30 years in a few months. Is it worth it all that a group of about 50 came together and planted a church to return to the faithful biblical preaching? That was in their charter documents. Let's get back to the basics. Let's go back to seeing Jesus lifted up. And as we open our Bibles in Luke 19, it was a Palm Sunday 16 years ago. Uh, we were in Wisconsin with the family, and the church was voting here, and they called us to come. And we started the next Sunday, 16 years ago, Easter Sunday. Now, if you don't have a sermon on Easter Sunday, that might have been the shortest pastor it ever known. You know, I'm not sure what to speak on on Easter Sunday. Like, next, you're fired. You're out of here. But here we are 16 years later, and I'll say it again. The Lord is faithful. Amen. So as we gather, this is the, commonly known as the triumphal entry. If you have whatever gospel you're in, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's usually under the heading in your Bible, the triumphal entry. The title of the message today is Triumph and Tragedy. Triumph and tragedy. When reading through the four Gospels and you come to Christ's final week, they each shed light from a different perspective, written for a different audience, written at different times. If we reassemble Jesus' final week before the cross, his earthly ministry coming to an end, it was on Saturday that Jesus was anointed by Mary and Bethany. Judas became furious with Jesus on that event. He, he just hated being called out and exposed. On Sunday, the crowds came to Jesus in Bethany. This is where Lazarus was raised from the dead, John chapter 11. It was on Sunday or possibly even Monday that the triumphal entry actually happened of Jesus making his way into the city of Jerusalem. On Tuesday, he cleaned house in the temple, his father's house, his house. On Wednesday, he exchanged controversy with the religious leaders. It was coming to a head, and they were quickly looking for someone like Judas to get rid of this Jesus of Nazareth. On Thursday, Jesus sent his disciples prepare for the Passover, and the Passover would come to its fruition, come to its fulfillment as it would become known as the Lord's table. And it would say all of those Passovers that look forward to this event have found their consummation. 
and he would take the cup and he would take the bread and give a whole new meaning that they would only fully understand after the resurrection, after the ascension, and the indwelling spirit of God in them. Jesus was betrayed later that night after washing his disciples' feet. He stood trial, a mock trial, in the middle of the night. Then he was crucified on that Friday. His body laid in the tomb Saturday. It looked like all hope was gone. You realize this story can't be improved, and they, they try so hard to make movies. The movies, they, they just can't get it done. They can't show it graphically enough. You can't improve this account. Here's the glory of this account. This week, next week, it's actually every week for the church. Our job is to simply retell the story. Tell the story again. Tell it again. Tell it again. Tell it again. That's why we're here. By all human standards, that week was anything but triumphal. You would be hard-pressed to find anybody on that Saturday that said, this week, journal it, amazing week. Betrayed Jesus, one Judas committed suicide, the rest deserted Jesus. None of them were saying, this, is, this went marvelously well. Hey, Peter, what are we doing next? They were all stunned. But then Sunday's coming. And you have to come back next week for part two of the story, all right? There's the, the little cliffhanger there. Now, just imagine, imagine seeing someone that you knew and you lived life with and they passed away, they died. You knew they were gone. You knew they were dead. And imagine them walking back into lunchtime with you. And you heard them, saw them, touched their body and ate with them, what would it get for people to tell you, just say they're not alive again? And you love them and you watch them go through the most horrific de death that thousands of people have went through in the Roman Empire. None of them would deny after that. Like, you can't get me to say he's not alive because I saw him. Well, we'll kill you and then I'll see him again. Time's a-wasting. This story, it just has to be retold. So let's look at it in our Bibles. Luke 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, speaking about stewardship, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. There's a little, he's moving up to the city. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it. Imagine this now just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. 
And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is he, the King, who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples, he answered. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies shall set up, will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the beautiful, powerful, saving word of the living God. Loved ones, we're making one statement out of this passage that Luke is portraying throughout his gospel, and that is this, Jesus, Messiah, is the Savior King. Jesus, Messiah, is the Savior King. This King who came to save was, first of all, there's four truths, he was welcomed by some. There were some who welcomed him. Jesus is the one leading the way up to Jerusalem. In Luke 9, 51, there's a shift that happens in the gospel, and Jesus fixes his face like a flint going to his death, making his way to Jerusalem. He wasn't following behind them. He wasn't afraid. He was leading the way. He was going there with purpose. He was going there with passion. And along with this came the praise from some in the crowd. Luke gives to us the details here. There's a planned route. This isn't a hidden back door coming in, sneaking in through the night. Nehemiah went out, you know, doing the reconnaissance by himself quietly around these same walls. That's not how Jesus came in the city. This is a planned route, and he led the way. He's going to Jerusalem with purpose. Now, understand the time, the setting for this. Around Passover, this, this festival time in Israel, there would be approximately a quarter of a million people would gather in the city of Jerusalem. The, the population would just swell. An influx, a crowd that was unmanageable. It's been said that Jerusalem at Passover season was the delight of the Jews and the despair of the Romans. Oh, great. Here they come again. All hands on deck, everybody on duty. 
We're watching for any insurrection. We're watching, pay attention. With thousands of Jews ascending upon the city, their hearts would have been filled with excitement. There was nationalistic fervor. Let's make Israel great again. And Jesus can do it. If you kill our guys, he just raises them back to life. Remember Lazarus? Just happened. If we run out of food, isn't that a problem going on right now in the Ukraine? They can't get food in. Well, Jesus will just turn little lunch into feeding thousands. How can we lose? Nationalistic fervor is on the rise. And he just comes right into the city. Down the Mount of Olives right into the city for all to see. This is a prophetic ride. Luke points this out. He's coming in on a donkey. I was recently hearing another, another pastor share a testimony of growing up in the ministry. He said, and I've heard it recently a few times. The, our pastor, uh, our family car was a Chevette, you know? My Chevette. That's kind of what Jesus is coming into town on. This is something that if you are, you know, here's my Bentley over here, here's my Ferrari, my Lamborghini, here's my muscle car classic, and he's coming in on a donkey. This this isn't what Romans are accustomed to. If you're a conquering king, you're coming in, have you seen Gladiator on a white horse with the throngs gathered, and you're coming in with your enemies, you chain around their neck, and then you're going to get them there, and you're going to put your foot on their neck and say, this is for the glory of Rome, and they're going to die in the Colosseum with the wild beast that I have, and we're going to have a huge festival and a huge show. Jesus comes in on a donkey. But for the first time, Jesus actually endorses and allows the the crowd cheering and praising and calling him king. He doesn't quiet it down. Zechariah 9 and verse 9. Now think about when we get to this prophecy, we're we're going back 500 years, which is 100 years before Nehemiah. So we've been saying through our series in Nehemiah that Nehemiah read the word of God. He understood the word of God and he said, We're not ready to receive this Messiah King. We have to get the walls fixed. Sovereignty has to be restored to this nation. We have to restore a place of order and and preparation because this isn't fit for a king. And he has a hundred years. He goes to work. The work of the wall is in progress. Now we fast forward another 400 years and here comes Jesus fulfilling this prophecy. Rejoice greatly, Zechariah 9.9. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, very specific, coming to Jerusalem. Your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, and even more specifically, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. A young donkey, never been ridden before. Right off the line. And this is an announcement when Jesus comes to say, the king we've been waiting for, I'm here now. He's here. The Old Testament, when Jehu was anointed, they put cloaks on the the beast that he rode and they proclaimed him to be king. Riding on a donkey is a sign of humility. He came the first time not to condemn and destroy loved ones. He came the first time to save. But it's a royal procession. 
It's a passionate reception. This is a reception that would be fit for a king. They're crying out, save now. Save us. There are many in the world right now that are waiting on and appealing to the world, save us. Not a month from now, we'll see how it goes in 30 days. They're saying, save us. We're being annihilated. And what you want to hear is, I have a desire to rescue you. I have the ability to rescue you. And I will rescue you. So they're crying out. Now this matches the announcement from the angel Gabriel to Joseph in Matthew 1.21. You are going to go and you're going to take Mary to be your wife. You're right, that, that baby in her is not yours, not your child. She will bear a son, Joseph, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from what? Their sins. Save now. But there's confusion here because they've, they're not thinking save us from our sin. They're thinking save us from out, from underneath Rome. So the crowds are rejoicing and they're praising God with a loud voice. They've been seeing these miraculous works that Jesus has performed. And most of these crowds would have been those people swelling into the city from rural Galilee. Those crowds were much more receptive to Jesus than the city of Jerusalem was. And we can even bring that to today. Jerusalem has never fully received and confessed Jesus as Messiah, their Savior King. They're, they're still blinded to this, many of them, not all. So Luke rec recorded the, the crowds, they laid their cloaks down on the road for the king. It's a lovely display of honor and dignity. John 12, 13, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And if you're a Roman, somebody watching to protect Rome, and you hear them saying, the king of Israel. Remember what the religious leaders would say? Oh, we have no king but Caesar. Hypocrites. They hated Caesar, but they hated Jesus more. And they're proclaiming, here's our king. Here's our king. He's going to save us. We've been waiting on him for hundreds of years. We're going free. Joyous praise and worship were a direct response to all of these miracles. Blessed is the king, verse 38 who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You can hear, they're just, they're just going after it. It's our time now. The Pharisees tell them to stop. Oh, if they stop chanting, if they stop praising, the stones will cry out. We used to sing that song, ain't no rock gonna cry out in my place. As long as I'm alive, I'll, I've forgotten all the words, but it's not like glorify his holy name. Psalm 18, 118, verse 25, this is, where, this is where they're picking up their Old Testaments and they're applying it to Jesus. Save us, the psalmist said. We pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Make a way for us. Rescue us. Deliver us. Save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The name of the Lord. What is the name of the Lord? I am. 
We know this story. Our people cried out in Egypt, save us. And the Lord heard. And the Lord came to Moses and he met with him and he said, go rescue my people. And we walked out. And we walked through the Red Sea on dry land. Oh, save us again. By attributing this psalm to Jesus, the people were declaring to him to be the anointed one spoken of in Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23. But again, they assumed salvation is for us political salvation. We're going to make Israel great again. And they failed to recognize that the salvation before them was their greatest need of salvation, to be delivered from their sins, their bondage to sin, their bondage to Satan, and ultimately their fate of dying without Christ, separated from God forever. Christ's failure to meet their false expectations would end up turning to a widespread rejection, not by all, But this rural crowd is chanting and it's meeting the city, those in the city who are more, think Washington, D.C. versus Iowa, Nebraska. Okay, These two different cultures are colliding within the same people and they don't think the same and they're not after the same thing. Zechariah 9.10 says that his reign was not going to be regional. It was going to be to the ends of the earth. It was going to be to all the nations. It would be universal. His triumph would be spiritual, not political. His triumph would be light dispelling darkness, good overcoming evil, love defeating hatred, and truth crushing error, and life conquering death. That's why he was coming into the city that day. He was welcomed by some. Have you welcomed him? Oh, I would have welcomed him if I was there. Have you welcomed him? Have you taken everything in your life and submitted it to the lordship, the kingship of Jesus Christ? That's what it is to welcome him. Second truth from Luke is that he was rejected by many. He was rejected by many. Now, this is where the tragedy begins to unfold. Triumph fades into tragedy because they had their Bibles. They knew the Old Testament. They should have seen all of the signs. The lame healed, the blind can see, the dead raised to life, the gospel preached to all people, but they missed it. Instead, he was aggressively rebuked and rejected by many, by most. The religious leaders here Luke gives to us, they were raging I mean, they were absolutely indignant. They were fuming. They were filled with hatred. So when people are praising God, glory to God, peace, this is amazing, Jesus, our Savior King, they are just filling up and overwhelmed with envy and jealousy and hatred because he didn't come through our ranks. We didn't give him permission Jesus, tell them to knock it off. Turn it down. Turn the music down. Let's make it real quiet. The people of God say, oh no, we're just preparing for heaven. It's not going to be quiet in heaven. They're lifting up their voices, loud voices, crying out. Matthew, after Jesus healed the blind men in the temple, 21, Matthew says, 
that these religious leaders were indignant. Mark says they were seeking a way to destroy him, the scribes and the chief priests. Luke here, the teacher, rebuke your disciples. John, written decades later, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Paraphrase. Bros, we are spinning our wheels here. We got nothing against him. There's nothing dirty on him. Oh, here we are. We're coming to a political season again. Get ready. Right now, people trying to find dirt on any candidate from any side. We're going to find it. And we're going to put it out as widely. They can't find anything on Jesus, just like they couldn't on Daniel. We're going to have to find him in his commitment to, to God. They're raging. Well, while they're raging and fuming and filled with anger, what's Jesus doing? Jesus was weeping. Jesus was weeping. He was filled with love. The love of the Father, and he understands the true need just like he did at Lazarus' graveside. He was the only one that understood fully everything going on that day that Lazarus laid behind the tomb and why he had come to die. Jesus exposed their spiritual blindness. The city refused to admit their personal guilt and to come to Christ for salvation and peace with God. Listen, loved ones, religion will never satisfy. Religion will never satisfy the longing of your soul, the longing of your heart. You can't give enough money. You can't attend church enough. You can't do a physical act, partake of communion. There's nothing that can be humanly done for you or by you to save your soul and wash away your sin. That is a work of God done in you by the power of his spirit and you hear the gospel and you admit that you're a sinner and you believe that Jesus Christ paid your personal sin debt you receive him and you build your life on him and everything is a outflowing of because I have been redeemed, because I have been adopted, because I have been forgiven, now I live in the goodness of God. That's why we fellowship together. That's why we worship together. Where else would we be as the people of God? What is more important than this? Answer, nothing. This is it. And Jesus exposed their spiritual blindness. He wept over the city. Do you you understand that Jesus' heart was broken? Can we see how far the chasm that's between Jesus, who's being maligned and hated and mocked, and he has all authority and all power in heaven and on earth, and how does he respond to people lying about him, blaspheme against him? How does he respond Probably not the way you and I respond when somebody misunderstands us. Oh, I didn't say it that way. I didn't mean it that way. And we go to defense one, two, and a hundred and we'll never stop. And Jesus is doing what? He's weeping over the city. He is weeping. He is moved with compassion. Matthew 23, 37 says, oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, yet you were not willing. He's taking the imagery of Psalm 91, saying, as a mother hen, I was saying, come, the judgment of a righteous God is going to fall. Here's here's the picture. 
it will either fall, it will fall. It will fall on the sinner or it, will, it fell on Jesus who if you take shelter and refuge under his wing, then he bore the punishment that was coming to you and coming to me. But sin must be punished. Sin must be atoned for, it must be dealt with. Loved ones, how do we look upon others who are trapped in spiritual blindness, in darkness? Do we share the heart of God for people? Do we weep? When was the last time that we were weeping over someone's rebellion against God? We have so much to learn from our master. When we are brought to this place where we share the heart of God and we look upon others who are blinded by their sinfulness and in, and in darkness, that will heavily influence how we use our time, how we use our money, all of our resources devoted to carrying out the master's great commission here on a corner a mile and a half from here and around the world. Why? Because people aren't ready. And we want them to be ready. I want you to be ready. Jesus foretold of their coming judgment in verses 43 and 44. He detailed the coming Roman persecution. He's weeping. He understands and they don't. Here's what's coming. In about 40 years, this judgment would come upon the city. A.D. 70 the temple that was rebuilt by Zerubbabel and greatly enhanced and expanded by Herod would be leveled in AD 70, completely wiped off that hillside. Well, why would they do that? Because there was gold. Remember the disciples? Jesus, look at the gold in the, in the setting sun. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it beautiful? And Jesus said, it's all coming down. What? Peter had something to say. He was like, eh, last time I said something, it didn't go too good. I got called Satan. So I think I'll just chew on this one a little bit. It's all coming down. This perverted system, this religious system that is oppressing the very people that it should be helping, Jesus says it's coming down, and it did. And they took and they got the gold off of every stone and threw the stones over the side, and it's leveled. And what is still on that leveled mount? Dome of the Rock, an Islamic holy site. Um, the Lord's not done with Jerusalem yet, loved ones and his people. You and I who are Gentiles, we've been grafted in. Let's not be arrogant. Let's be humble. The nation ceased to exist. Never happened like this in human history. Gone, 80, 70, until... Some of you might have been alive during, during this time, May 14th, 1948, and nation, the nation of Israel is restored. It's like the fire was out a long time, and then you pull back the coals, and there's an ember there. And the Lord is sovereign, and the Lord is working out his plan. And it's for the inclusion of the nations to meet this Savior Messiah that came through the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus, Messiah. Loved ones, this is our third truth, that Jesus is available to all. He is Messiah, he's the Savior King, and he is available to all. And in verses 45 through 48, Jesus makes his way into the temple. You know, the, the, 
The Pharisees are trying to get him, can you silence this crowd? We hate this song. What's your problem with this song? It tells about you. They're applying it to you. Jesus said, no. You can't make me. It's not my day to die. You can't shut me down. And by the way, if I tell them to stop, they're just going to give way to the, the stones crying out. Jesus is moved with compassion. He enters into the temple, and there he sets his house in order. He cleaned out the temple. He drove out the money changers. Just like Nehemiah, remember when he dealt with the wealthy people who were abusing the poorer people? And Nehemiah said, I have, I have the, the command of the word of God and you need to stop, and you need to repent, and you need to give back their lands, and you give back their houses, give back their vineyards, and give them back their kids, and obey the word of God. Jesus walks into his father's house, the temple, his house, and he sets it in order. He reminded them of the purpose of God's house. It was to be a house of prayer. Loved ones, that's our distinctive that we are believing in the power of God, we pray without ceasing. Oh, may God make that to be true in us as his people, that we pray fervently without ceasing. Nothing good and nothing lasting for all eternity will happen without prayer, without God answering our prayers. He set his house in order and he spoke the words of life. There he was, boldly proclaiming the truth every day without apology. Uh, that is our distinctive number one, and that is in the DNA of the founding of this church. Go back to Scripture. Don't give lo love and loyalty, first of all, to denomination. Give love and loyalty to Jesus and the Word of God and hang your hat there and build your life there. It is important to be fellowshiped with other like-minded churches because together we can spread the gospel to the world. We can't do that on our own. We're part of that. Jesus was carrying out faithful ministry of the living word in the presence of his enemies. Sound like Psalm 23? And he had no fear. And the people sat there stunned. Like, Who teaches like this? He isn't quoting rabbi such and such and somebody once said and the other person said, he's saying, I say to you, I say to you, I say to you, and nobody is shutting him down. The people are hanging on every word, all the people. He was speaking to men and he was speaking to women and there was a court for Gentiles that could hear him speaking and there were Romans around and there were leaders, there were the elite there was everybody. He didn't just zero in on, here's the people I care about. He came and he was available to all people. Amen? And that's what he displayed. His words draw near the humble and they push away the proud. That's what the gospel does, loved ones. It draws in the humble and it pushes away the, pr the proud. It divides. There's a line. There's a dividing line. I can't come with all of my pride and all with my bad thinking and bad ideas and just add Jesus to all of that mess. I have to give up. I have to surrender. And so do you. 
and receive Jesus and confess him as Lord and trust him and just simply say, here I am. It's a great exchange. I give you all my sin. I give you me. I give you my heart. I give you my life. I just want you. That's what salvation is, loved ones. John 6, 63, Jesus said, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Your religion is no help at all. Your good works, no help. The words that I have spoken to you, Jesus said, are spirit and life. And that message in John 6, where Jesus speaks of God's sovereignty and salvation, that we don't choose him, he chooses us. There were a lot of people that said, check please, I'm out of here. I can't handle this. And they left. And Jesus looked to his disciples and said, y'all gonna stay around? Y'all gonna leave? I'm pretty sure he was from the south. And what does Peter respond in John 6, 68? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of, say those two words with me, eternal life. Can I ask you that question? Where else are you gonna go for those words? You want some more stories from a guy speaking on a platform somewhere? Or do you need the words that are eternal life? Those words change the stories of our life radically. The fourth truth that we see from Luke's account, but actually it just is a setup for this coming week of passion that we see next week fulfilled, and that is Jesus was wounded for me. He was wounded for me. He willingly suffered and died for me. We're entering into these, these days of Jesus' final week and he is going to the cross. Why? For you and for me. And for everyone alive on planet earth, he went to the cross for their sins, for my sins. He went there for me. This is so important. So can I encourage all of us this week, slow down. Read your Bibles, read the Gospels, read the, the last week of Christ, read the Passion Week, whether you watch a movie or something, but there's always, you gotta filter through that, but do something different this week to stop the crazy busy of life, turn off the news a little bit, change your intake and meditate on he was wounded for me. And that is what will lead us to, I can't wait to gather with my brothers and sisters in Christ and we will sing of the resurrection. I don't know what kind of weather it's gonna be next morning at 6.30 down there. Last year it was decent, we'll see, it's Michigan. Might have about three seasons in one little half hour gathering in the morning. There's nothing mystical about it. Jesus won't show up at the pond. There might be some geese or something else, okay? But it's just simply a gathering that says, man, it was a morning like this and the, the women went with no expectation except how are we gonna get the stone moved? I don't know. Let's go anyway. I just wanna be near Jesus, his body. And everything changed. Isaiah 53, 5 but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, 
and with his wounds, we are healed. This is what will carry over into our observing of communion in a few moments. And for the first time in a long time, we're going to do a little different and we're going to go back to what is ingrained in communion when a body gathers and that is we serve one another. Now we still got the little cups. We don't have the, you know. But the cups are inside of these trays and you will be served and then you will serve the person next to you and serve them. That's why we don't take communion out and we go and I'm at home and here's my thing. You can't serve you. That's just pride, self-centeredness. That just adds to more, I need some more me. It's when you come together, Jesus says, that's when you remember because there's a point to him dying, suffering, being buried, and rising again. And that is the people I'm looking at and the guy you're looking at, we're in this thing together to carry out the great commission. And I can't do that by myself. I can't use my giftedness by myself. It, it's used with you. And the same goes as you serve and bless and we fellowship together and we can't do that anywhere else but gathered with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It also gives an opportunity for parents to have the conversation with their kids about communion. Have you been saved yet? Have you followed in baptism? Can we have that conversation? Is there any sin that's, that's not confessed in your life? And we can talk with our children rather than there's just a cup available and they just take it. Loved ones, the gospel is personal. He was wounded for me. Jesus was crucified, he was buried, and he was placed in a borrowed tomb, but then he was risen and he was taken up into heaven. This gospel is personal. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, this is the message that I came to Corinth, and he reminds them, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, for I delivered to you as of first importance that what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There it is. He died, was buried, raised, and it was all according to the word of God. And Paul is reminding them, when I came to Corinth, that is where I started, and years later, that's where I still am. It's the greatest message, and it can't be improved upon. It just needs to be retold by all of us everywhere we go. This gospel is personal. This gospel is powerful. This gospel is powerful. Jesus is now seated at the right hand of his father. He is reigning and interceding for his own. He is saving and changing, absolutely transforming lives today, right now. Maybe even through this sermon preached, someone will have their eyes spiritually open to see Christ for who he is in all his glory, and they will trust in him, and those waters will be moved in a few weeks where they will make that profession public to say, I belong to Jesus. He saved me. And the church says, hallelujah, bring it on. We'll fill it every week if we could. Right? That's why we're here. Paul said, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Why are you not ashamed of this gospel, Paul? I used to hate it. Because it is the power of God for salvation to, what's the word? Not just people like me. To everyone, for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so Paul went everywhere proclaiming this gospel, a Jew that once hated Jesus and killed his followers, and he was changed. So when he writes this, he's saying, let me tell you, 
He changed my life. Has he changed your life? Are you telling anyone about how God has changed your life? Loved ones, this gospel is powerful. Jesus is coming again. He is coming again in power and glory. And the Bible comes to its conclusion, Revelation 22, 20. This is where the whole book is going. He who testifies to these things says, here's Jesus, here's your master. Here's the one who was wounded for you, suffered, was buried, and rose again, ascended. And he says, surely I am coming soon. And John says, amen. Bring it on, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's go. You realize the Apostle John was saying, we're in the last days. Oh, we're in the last days. I hear people every now and then, good thing you're preparing people for the last days. That's what John was doing 2,000 years ago. We're in the last days, and so was John. And Jesus is saying, I'm coming. I'm coming soon. Loved ones. The gospel is pivotal. This gospel proclaimed as the top message, Jesus. It's a pivotal message. It's a a life-changing message. Everything hinges on how are you with Jesus. Jesus will come again for his own. This will be the second coming. This will be the return of the king. And he's not coming on the Chevette. He's not coming on a donkey. He's not coming in an F-16. He's not coming in anything other than needed himself in all of his glory. And Revelation says, we who belong to him, the saints who have been redeemed and washed in the blood of the lamb, here's what we're saying. We're with him. We're his. We're his servants. That's why we serve him now as a prelude to we're coming with him. He's the one with the sword in his mouth. He's coming again for his own in John 14, this precious and sweet passage. Verse three, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, here's what I want all along. I wanna be with you. That goes all the way back to the garden. Adam, Adam, where are you? Adam, over here, Lord. Why are you clothed, Adam? What'd you do, Adam? The Lord knew what he did. How many times as parents we talk to our kids, we know what happened. We're just waiting. Are they going to get honest? Or no, 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 no. Okay, it was me. Yeah. We, we come by that naturally from our first father. And his blood is in our veins. But when the second Adam becomes our Lord and Savior, his blood is in our veins and he's changing us spiritually changing us. I want to be with you, verse 4. And you know the the way to where I'm going. Thomas, thank you, Lord, for Thomas, the question guy, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, say it with me, and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's a way, loved ones, There is a way for sinners. There is a way for you to be ready when you die or Jesus comes again. 
But there's only one way. It's Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And he will judge the world in righteousness. So can I ask you, are you ready? Are you ready for his return? Is your, is your family ready? Are your coworkers ready? Are your neighbors ready? Are my neighbors ready? The people that we live life with, are they ready? Uh, you have a week, should the Lord tarry, should he hold off on his return, should we have a week to live, we have a week to celebrate and people are actually out there saying, I wonder what I should do next week for Easter Sunday. You know, I probably should go. And what about you saying, hey, why don't you go with me to church? Join me. Greatest message. Not really the greatest speaker. He's all right, but the greatest message, it'll be there. It's about Jesus. And by the way, you don't have to wait till Sunday to tell him the message. You can tell them right where you are. He will judge the world in righteousness. Luke 20 and verse 18. Jesus says, everyone who falls on that stone, and he's speaking of himself, he's speaking of Christ, will be broken to pieces. What's he saying? If I, if I humbly today, if you've never trusted in Christ and you are convicted of your sin and you fall on that stone, that altar, that Christ, you'll be broken to pieces, all of your sin and shame exposed. And there he, through repentance and faith in the power of his spirit, he will build you back up as a new creature, a new creation, saved, spotless in the blood of the lamb, but to the person that says, no, I don't want Jesus, I don't need Jesus, then Jesus says, that stone will crush him. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. There's judgment, and it's past the time of mercy. So this is not to be delayed. This is life and death. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. That's what an ambassador is. What's our message? Be reconciled to God. Well, how can I be reconciled to God? That's the gospel. For our sake, sinners, he, the Father, made him, Christ, to be sin who was sinless. He knew no sin. So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange. How can I be reconciled to God is the, is the question that dominates our hearts when we're afraid of dying. We're afraid of living. How can I be reconciled to God? I'm not good enough. I can't keep the law. Here it is. God broke through and made a way for you. So that all he says is, give me your sin, give me your shame, and because of Christ's atoning work, I will give you righteousness and life that never ends. This is the gospel. And when Jesus came, the Savior King, Messiah the first time, he was welcomed by some. Have you welcomed him? personally welcomed him. He was rejected by many, if not most, as most people today still reject him. But he was, and here's the glory, he still is available to all today because he was wounded for me and he was wounded for you. But like I said before, that's not the end of the story. 
This is a week of anticipation. This is a week of contemplation as we prepare to celebrate the resurrection next Sunday together. Oh, that we would repent and believe and then we'd share that message. And Jesus is coming and this is my prayer. For 60 years, there's been faithfulness here. What about the next 60? May this be said of us, Luke 12, 43, that Jesus is saying, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Not, oh, I was going to get to that, but I was really busy, Lord. Oh, I had this and I had that, fill in the blank, whatever, whatever eclipses your calendar. I was going to be about your business, but, you know, I had fill in the blank and hold on to that because you will stand before the throne with that. Is it worth it? Or will we hear these words? Will this be a reality of us as a people of God that we are actively waiting? He is coming. How will he find you? How will he find me? And how will he find us? By God's grace and his faithfulness and the power of the Holy Spirit, he will find us so doing, serving him. Father, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for your word, your glorious word. I thank you that you are available to everyone. You came in and you associated with the lowly. Thank you for your word that gives life. Thank you for your people. Thank you for your church, Lord. Forgive us of sin. Cleanse us and use us for your glory today, this week, and for how many ever days you give to us so that when you return, you find us, the people of grace, ready, waiting, ready. We love you, but it's because you loved us first. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.